Well, hey, good good morning, good day, whatever time you're watching this. Glad you are with us today, tuning in to the online experience. I hope that this this has been helpful to you. I hope you're able to stay connected uh, throughout these crazy days through online. My name is Aiden, one of the pastors here. If I haven't been able to meet you, uh, glad that you're tuning in. If you are someone who has called Grace Church home, we miss you and glad that you're able uh, to be on this way. I'd love to hear from you. You can email me uh, and just tell me that you're listening. Uh, tell me how God's been working in your life, just what's going on. I'd love to hear from you. It helps as we just kind of prepare. We are in the series called Living in Exile that we have been going through for the last couple weeks. And what we've been saying is that as followers of Jesus, if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, we've been saying that this, this world isn't our home. Like America, as great as it is, isn't the kingdom of God, right? But this earth, this country is kind of, we have secondary citizens citizenship to it, right? Our primary citizenship is in, in allegiance is to the kingdom of God, right? It's the kingdom of Jesus. And so we've been kind of looking at this concept through the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, it's this Old Testament story, and we see these four guys, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, right? That they were exiled from their home. They lived in the kingdom of Judah, and they were exiled from their home. God allowed foreign powers to come and take them into exile. And so we see them kind of growing up in a foreign power, primarily Babylon, right? Babylon is this, this historical place that was opposed to the ways of God. And we kind of see almost this metaphorical theme of Babylon throughout scripture, right? Any civilization, any culture that is opposed to the ways of God. And so they're living in Babylon. And as they're there, God instructs these exiles to seek the good of the place that they find themselves in. Not to, not to just compromise and become part of the culture and blend in and just do what the Babylonians do, but also not to fight back or to withdraw or to anything like that. But the idea is, is that we would redemptively participate that God calls us in Jeremiah 29 as exiles to seek the good of the city, to pray for it, um, and to seek its peace, right? And so today, we are going to jump into a familiar story, a story that you've likely uh, heard before. But what we want to do is we want to look at it through the lens of this idea of witness. Now, that may be a weird word uh, if you, unless you grew up in like 90s church culture or if maybe you're on a crime scene. Like this idea of witness can kind of be a weird word. But what it simply is, it's the evidence or the proof of something. Our witness is the evidence or the proof of something. Uh, maybe we do something we believe, right? Uh, I, years ago, uh, when I started working at the church, Pastor Adam, uh, he's a sports guy. So he had a softball league and he's like, Aiden, do you want to come play softball with me and my team? We need some people to fill in. And he made it sound like we were just playing in like somebody's mom's backyard. Like it did not sound like an official thing. And so I said, sure. So a Saturday morning, my wife and I drive to wherever they're going and um, I'm wearing like boat shoes with no socks and I'm wearing jean shorts and like, yeah, I'm just, I dressed like this because he made it sound like it was just some guys playing wiffle ball or something like that. But I get there and there are dudes in baseball pants with like donuts on their bat, like working on their swing. They got baseball bat, they got, like the black stuff under their eyes. My wife just says to me, uh-oh. <laughs> like she like she knows that like this is about to be bad because I do not belong here. But what that situation did was my attire, how prepped I was, bore witness to the fact that I had no idea what I was doing. If you needed evidence that I didn't know how to play baseball, you could just look at the way I dressed, right? You're like, that guy doesn't know how to play baseball. I didn't do bad that day. I didn't do bad. But today, we are going to dive into one of the most, the most familiar story in Daniel, right? Daniel in the lion's den, chapter six. I know some of you guys are like, finally... Finally, we're finally getting to the lions. 
You've been tuning in, waiting for the lions. Well, ladies and gentlemen, today is Lions Day. But as we read through this, I want you to kind of read through this through the lens of this idea of witness, how we see Daniel's life pointing to, giving evidence of what it is that he believes, right? What Daniel believes shows up in his life. And what's interesting, we've said this a couple times, but at this point in the story, Daniel is 80 years old. Like sometimes we picture Daniel in Lion's Den and he's like Garrett's age or something, but but he he's 80 years old. Like he's an old dude, right? At, at the point of what is going on. And so he, he came to Babylon. He's a 15-year-old kid, right? He came as he's a 15-year-old kid. He got promoted. He confronted kings. Uh, we looked at this last week. He kind of fell into obscurity as new kings came. Eventually, he was called out of obscurity. He led. He, he lived through this whole kingdom takeover, all this stuff. And now he's this 80-year-old guy, and he's he's under a new king. At the la- end of the last chapter, we looked at this last week, at the end of chapter 5, Babylon was overtaken by Medo-Persia. And so now there's a new kingdom, a new ruler, right? And we are going to jump in. There's no way around this, but to just... Go straight through the story. So we're going to do that together. Chapter 6, you guys can pause, uh, open up a Bible, turn on your phones to chapter 6. We'll throw it on the TV here and we'll read through this. Chapter 6, Daniel and the Den of Lions. It pleased Darius, that's the new king, the Medo-Persian king in town. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom. I didn't vote for any satraps this year, but a satrap was just kind of a a ruler of, of different areas within the kingdom. He had 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, of whom was, uh, of one of them was Daniel. So there's 120 satraps, three administrators. One of those three guys is Daniel. Daniel's one of the big three, right? Now, Daniel was so distinguished. He was so distinguished among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. 120 satraps, three administrators, Daniel's one, and the king's like, I want to put you over all of them, because Daniel did such a great job. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs. His co-workers didn't like him. They were going to try and catch him, but it says they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. That's worth double-clicking on. Finally, these men, his co-workers said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Daniel's got a good position. His co-workers don't like this dude. So they're like, we got to find him doing something sketchy. They can't do it. So like, we got to find something that has to do with his God. So look what happens. Verse six. So the administrators and satraps went as a group before the king and they said, may the king live forever. And all these political guys, they all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that for the next month, the next 30 days, except for the king, um, that they that nobody can pray to any god or any other human being except for the king. 30 days, you can only worship, only pray to the king. No other human, no other god, right? He said, they said, now, verse 8, Now, majesty, issue this decree and put it in the writing so it cannot be changed in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, so it can't be repealed. So King Darius put this decree in writing. So King Darius makes this decree. If you worship any other god, you get thrown in the lion's den. And according to their law, it can't be changed. He can't go back and say, Mulligan, never mind, right? It is now in writing, can't be changed. Look at verse 10. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room with the windows open towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed. 
giving thanks to God, look at this, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king. These guys kind of tattled, went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. King, did you not publish a decree that for the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any other god or human except you would be thrown into the lion's den? You know, they, they kind of catch Daniel. They're like, we knew he was going to do this. They knew that's how faithful Daniel was, that he would be praying. And they're like, got him. Let's go to the king. And they're like, king, 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 did you not put this decree into writing, right? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians. It cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, ha, Daniel, he's one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or the decree you put in the writing. He still, he still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. It's fascinating. This king loved Daniel. Like he, he promoted Daniel. Also like Daniel had good standing with the king. He did good work. He wasn't a sketchy guy. And so when these guys frame him, the king was distressed about this because he loved Daniel, right? He cared about Daniel. Then these, all these men went to the king Darius and said, remember majesty that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no decree can be changed. 16, so the king gave the order. They brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. And then the king said to Daniel, as they tossed him down, May your, king, may your God, whom you serve, continually save you. This stone is brought, placed over the mouth of the den. The king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation may not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace, spent the night without eating, without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. The king's like messed up over this, right? Like he knew he got had by these other guys. He loved Daniel. There's no way he could go back on it because of the law, and he went home and he was, he, was, he was upset. No entertainment, didn't eat. It's probably up all night. 19. At the first light of dawn, the king got up, hurried to the lion's den. When he came near, he called in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Like the king is like still, he has this, he has seen how faithful Daniel is, and he stays up all night. First light of the, of the dawn, he runs to the den to see if some way this God saved Daniel. Daniel answered, May the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done anything wrong before your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. This story, if you, if you look through the book of Daniel, mirrors chapter three, right? Chapter three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had this test, right? Well, they bow down to the statue. They're like, no thanks, not gonna do it, right? Thrown in the fire. There was another one in the fire with them. They come out, not even a smell of smoke on them, right? No singed hair. Same thing with Daniel. He comes out of the lion's den. No wound, right? The king is kind of mad at all these other guys, throws all those other rulers and their families in the lion's den. It's kind of a tough go back then. A little tough environment, right? All these other guys get thrown in the lion's den. But look at this. Look at this. Verse 25. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and people of every language in the earth. And this is a song he breaks out into. He says, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. Listen to this. For he is a living God and endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. 
He rescues and saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So you may be familiar with that story, right? You may be familiar with that story. Maybe you've heard pieces of that story. Maybe you're like, I'm not sure why he got tossed in, but it's interesting, right? We see another way that, this, that these guys want to kind of frame him, but he stays faithful to the Lord. And so what we have been saying as we've been looking at all this is that we're like, what is that old Sunday school story from, from the Old Testament? What does it have to do with us as we live as exiles today, as we live in our culture today? And I said before we jumped in that we want to double click on this idea of witness, of this idea of how our life bears witness, is evidence, is proof of what we believe. And so as we just look at a couple quick things, I want to look at this. I want to see how this story shows us not just um, that practical aspect, but also the plans and the purposes of God. And so as we jump into this, the first thing I just want to double click on, and this is simple, we're not going to spend a ton of time here, but I think this is super practical, and I think for us as exiles living today, this is super helpful. First thing is this, as exiles, our work bears witness to the one that we worship. I I thought this was so interesting. Verses three and four. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and satraps tried to find grounds for charge against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Like, I love that idea. Daniel wasn't shady, he wasn't corrupt, he wasn't sketchy, but he was a trustworthy worker, right? And you know what? You know what's interesting? He didn't take a test in sixth grade on what career Daniel wanted to do, and the administrator of multiple foreign powers was what he got. Like, that, that was his career test. He wasn't like on Indeed or Monster.com looking for jobs, and he's like, oh, I think I'll work for hostile foreign powers. Like, these were not, this is not his, like, dream job. This is where he found himself, right? This is where he found himself in this story. He found himself in this position and he did his work well because of what God called the exiles to do in Jeremiah 29. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city that you find yourself in and to pray for it. Daniel did good work as an exile because it was God's will for him, right? Now, I think as we talk about this idea of redemptive participation, like participating in culture, not, not compromising, not re- running away from it or rejecting it or, or hiding from it or withdrawing or fighting back, but re- redemptively participating, being a part of culture and such that we can bring the good things out of culture. Like the first page of that manual is simply this. It's doing good work. Like page one of redemptively participation is doing good work. Like do what you do and do it really well and do it honestly. As I was thinking about this, there's a lot of different like examples I can think of, but agree or disagree, I think that like one of the most clear ways that we can see this in a very simple fashion in our world is Chick-fil-A. Like Chick-fil-A is a fast food restaurant. If you haven't been there, Leave what you're doing. It's not, they're not open on Sundays. You know, just go tomorrow. Go Monday to Chick-fil-A. But here's the thing about Chick-fil-A. They, it's a faith-based organization, right? Like, there's a Christian guy who founded it, all these things, right? Chick-fil-A does not, like, post verses on the walls. They don't, like, have a preacher standing inside the restaurant. Chick-fil-A does what they do, and they do it really well. Chick-fil-A has awesome food, clean restaurants. Everybody who's there is the nicest person you ever met that says, my pleasure after everything. It's like the the whole culture of Chick-fil-A is real honest and done really well, right? And what's interesting is a couple couple years ago, uh, Pastor Adam was kind of doing a staff meeting and and what he did was he brought in a guy from Chick-fil-A 
who kind of runs kind of their team culture, right? And so he did this with our staff. He did this with the First Impressions team. And he talked about why is Chick-fil-A, like how are they so good at what they do? How do you kind of train this culture? And what they do is they have a thing called uh, kind of second mile service. Jesus says, if someone asks you to go one mile, go with them too. And there's this whole idea around Chick-fil-A of going the extra mile, of seeing people as people, not as customers. And this whole thing, their whole culture of their team and their buildings, all this stuff is just done well. It's done intentionally. It's done from a kingdom mindset, right? I love that super, super simple picture. But doing something, but doing it well. If you drive through any other fast food, I don't want to drop any names, you're going to have a different experience than you are at Chick-fil-A. But they're both fast food restaurants. But Chick-fil-A does what they do and they do it well. God loves good work. He is the creator of all things. And at the end, he said, it is good, right? Jesus was a carpenter. God loves good work. We talked about this even just a couple months ago. But I know for some of us like that, doing good work, like just do a good job of what you do because we all work. Whether you play on a team, whether you do schoolwork, whether you have a career, whether you're mothering, whatever it is, like we all do work, right? But for some of us, that whole idea is easier said than done because whether you like your job or not, the reality is that work exhausts us, it drains us, and often it can feel like like a monotonous desert, right? Like I, I have a lot of conversations with people around this about how just like work is sucking the life from us, right? And for some of us, I think there's I think there's a piece of that where like there are situations where it's like we need to like kind of look at things and like seek wisdom and insight. We see that all through the book of Daniel, right? Like seeking wisdom about the situation we're in, right? For some of us, some of us, we, we're in a situation where we have like a rough workplace, draining schedule, unrealistic or unsympathetic management with unrealistic expectations. And it's just, it's, it's stealing family from us. It's stealing all these other things that God calls us from, right? There may be a point where it's like, I need to apply wisdom to my situation, right? And see like how God wants me to respond to this work. Maybe it's different work. Maybe it's looking at work differently, whatever. But regardless, I don't think we can miss the fact that that our work bears witness to the one we worship. We show up and we do good work, right? Here's the truth. If you, at your job, if you, if you show up late, if you're inconsistent, if you just don't do good work, people do not care about what you have to say about Jesus. Like they don't care about your opinion on Jesus if you, if you don't do a good job, if you aren't reliable or trustworthy, right? Like we see that in the story of Daniel. If, if you own a business, you run a business, do, do, you, do you take a, a, a fiscal hit to stay above reproach in your business dealings? Do you keep your integrity, your witness, even when it goes unnoticed? Daniel was an obscurity for years, right? He was an obscurity for years. No one was paying attention, right? Yet the work we do bears witness to the God that we worship. And I wanted to hit that quick, and where I want to spend most of the time uh, just during our time together is this. What we see so clearly in the story of Daniel is that the patterns of his life, the decisions that he made, pointed to a greater narrative than the one his culture was telling. Like he's in this crazy hostile culture, right? Like it's an ancient culture where like, it's like bloodshed, it's craziness, right? It's all about like kings and power and rule and these idol worship. We saw in chapter five about this intense pleasure, all this stuff. Daniel's not like hanging out like just, you know, he's hanging out in an intense situation, intense world. And yet his decisions, his way of life, bared witness to a different story than the story of his culture. And so you guys can write this down. We're going to unpack this for the next 10 minutes. But as exiles, as exiles, our practice, the things that we do, bear witness to the story we believe. 
The things that we do, our practice, the way we spend our time, the way we spend our life, it bears witness, it's evidence, it's proof of the story that we believe. Now look at this, chapter 10, or, or verse 10. When Daniel learned that this decree was going to be published, that if you pray to any other person or God, you're going to be thrown in the lion's den. What did he do? He went home to his upstairs room, windows open towards Jerusalem, three times a day. He got down on his knees, prayed, gave thanks to God, just as he had done before. That's punk rock. That is probably like the man is like, you got to do this. And Daniel's like, I'm going to do this. I was talking with a friend. He's like, Daniel was also 80. So maybe Daniel was just like, forget that. I'm doing what I want to do. You know, maybe he was just like the old guy who like ignores all that stuff. Maybe, who knows? But Daniel believed in the promises and the faithfulness of God for over 65 years, for the long haul, as he, from 15 on, as he's in Babylon, through promotions, opposition, obscurity, position, even death threats. Daniel didn't pray when things got rough. He didn't just start to pray. But what's interesting is the day before this decree was put out, three times a day, Daniel got home, kicked off his Birkenstocks, faced Jerusalem and prayed and gave thanks to God. The next day, this decree goes out. If you do this, you're going to die. Daniel continues to do the same thing that he has always done. It was his practice. His co-workers knew it. His, his enemies knew it. His boss, the king, knew it because as, as they were throwing Daniel in the lion's den, the king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. Daniel believed a story. He believed a story which drove his practice. What he believed about God drove what he did. In his practice, what he was in a constant habit of doing as he went through the fire, that impacted his response, right? That impacted his response. I want to I break this down. I want to break this down. So for Daniel, the story he believed, the story he believed was that story of Jeremiah 29, that promise that God is going to be faithful, that he had plans not to harm but to protect, to give hope in the future to the people of Israel. Maybe not people individually. We can take that individualistically oftentimes. But this was God's promise and plan for the people of Israel. That you're going to go into exile, but I've got this great story where I'm going to give you a hope in a future. That was the story that Daniel believed. That's what he held on to. That's what his, his witness pointed to, right? He believed the story of God's faithfulness, the story of God's goodness, the story of, of God's power. And that drove his practice. That drove what he did. We see this throughout the story that he, he daily came home and prayed. He daily served God, right? The king bore witness to that. He daily did good work. Like he had these practices in his life that, that pointed to the story that he believed. And look what happens when, when the fire comes, when this edict comes that, hey, if you worship God, if your practice is this, we're going to throw you into the lion's den. What did he do? What was his response? He went home and he continued to pray. He, he had this, this non-anxious presence. There's a guy, he, I think he's a rabbi. He was a family therapist. His name was Edwin Freeman. And he talks about this idea of a non-anxious presence. And this is what he says. He says, someone who has a non-anxious presence is someone who has clarity about his or her own life goals. And this example has clarity about the story they believe, clarity about the hope that they have. And therefore, someone who is less likely to be lost in the anxious emotional processes swirling about. Someone who can be separate 
while still remaining connected. Does that sound like an exile? Someone who can be separate themselves from the emotion, the anxiety, while still being involved, right? It's someone who can manage his or her own reactivity to the automatic reactivity of others. And here's Daniel. And therefore is able to take stands at the risk of displeasing. Because Daniel's his confidence and his hope was based in the story and his life reflected that when the fire comes, his response is the same because it's not rooted in the situation, it's rooted in this greater story. And so we see Daniel with this non-anxious presence. Now look at this. As we walk through this whole thing, as we talk about witness, what bears witness the story believe, what we do and how we respond when life gets tough, that is our witness. That is the evidence, the proof of what story we believe, of what hope that we have. Our witness is our practice and our response to the fire. Now, I want to walk through some of this for just a minute. Because the truth is, it's not like if we aren't a Christian, we don't have this. We all have a story that we believe. We all have practices and we all respond to the the fires of life, right? We looked at this in chapter 3. We're all going to walk through fire. And our response is based off the story we believe. There's a lot of different stories that our culture tells us about. A lot of different stories that our culture says. For for some of us, our our culture here in America, there's this, this story of the American dream, right? There's this story that if... If I work hard, if I work hard, if I do the right things, then I'll have this good life, right? If I work hard, then I'll have this good life. And so the practice, how that ends up showing up in our lives is that we, a lot of us, we overwork. You know, for all the husbands, we, we like spend all our time at work because we are trying to get the good life. And so we're going to overwork. For many of us, it's overspending. For some of us, it's always dreaming of the next thing, always planning for the next exciting thing. And we go into debt over that, whether that's financial debt, whether that's time debt, we're indebted to our business, whatever it is. Our practice shows up that way because of the story that we're being told. If you do this, then you'll get something great, right? And so our response when we go through the fire is that a lot of times we're like, hey, I worked for this. I didn't deserve this. And so we can have anger and bitterness and disappointment. We end up numbing the pain because we thought that if we just worked, if we just steered our life in this way, then we would get this this American dream, right? But our response, that story that we believe can lead oftentimes to a different response. A similar type of story is almost this this religious story that we believe, right? Now, I'm not talking necessarily about church because we are all very religious people. It just might not be based around church. It might be based around other things, right? For many of us, we believe this story that, similar to the American dream, if X, then Y, right? It's about as math problem-y as I get. If this, then that. We believe the story that if I find the perfect parenting strategy, if I can just be the perfect parent, do all the right parenting things, then my kids will grow up to be successes, right? Or if I just do the hard work, go to school, get the degree, then I'll absolutely get the job, and then I'll have like this fulfilling life, right? If, then. For some of us, it is a church thing. If I go to church, if I throw a five in the plate, sing a couple songs, show up on Sunday, then God will owe me and bless me. For some of us, it's like, if I find the right person, if I just find the right person who's hot and understands me and all these things, then I'm going to have, I'm going to have the dream life like I see in every Nicholas Sparks movie. See, it's like this if-then thing. If we find the right political system, just the right political system, the right ism, the right leader, whatever it is, then we're going to have like utopia in our world, right? If, then, and these all are religious things, right? These are all the stories. If you do this, then we'll get to this. And so our practice ends up being we religiously adhere to all these things, right? We religiously adhere to parenting strategies, to political strategies, to dating websites, to, to work, to all these different things so that we can get what was promised to us. And then a lot of times we hope that this story is going to buy our salvation, right? My kids, my, my relationships, my, my work, my whatever it is. 
becomes our salvation, right? But the response that comes out of that when we go through the fire is one of two things. If things do end up going well, then we get self-righteous. And we're like, see, I did the right parenting strategy. I was the right person in this relationship. I went to church, did the right thing. And if everything plays out right, then I played my cards right. But if these things don't show up, then I'm a failure. If my kids don't turn out right. If I don't find the dream person, if I don't get the job, if my party doesn't get elected, if the pains of life still come, even though I gave God 20 bucks on Sunday, then it's a failure, right? We're believing, we're living from a story. Our practice points to a story. One of the things that we see so prominently in our culture, this is like the story of Disney, right? Is that we have a culture, we believe the story of individualism. The story that we believe is that you will find meaning when you find your true self. And so the practice, the way that we spend our days, the way that we spend our time, is that, that we just want to create ourselves. We find ways to be happy above everything else. And so we kind of create our brand, our career, our location, our sexuality, our look, our experiences. We want to find all these things because we want to find our true self. And so we are on this quest to find ourselves, right? Because the highest, the highest level we can rise, the story of, of individualism is that if you can find who you really are, then you'll be happy. But you and I both know that as the realities of life come, as the fire comes, the response that shows up is insecurity because nothing is constant. There's this endless comparing ourselves to other people, to other curated selves, right? And we are tossed around by the waves of culture because there's nothing constant. Everything is subjective, right? Which leads to kind of this overarching story that I think we see a lot in our culture. And it's kind of, back, it's kind of backwards from this story. We'll throw it up here on the screen. And that's this, this secular story, right? Kind of the secular story of our culture is a little backwards. It's based on our, our emotions, our response, our feelings, our impulses, our instincts. It begins with what we feel. And whatever we feel is right, whatever, whatever our instincts and our impulses point us to, that becomes a story we believe. That's what becomes truth for us. That's what we become as true. So we, the story we believe is constructed out of what we feel to be right. That's why we look around the world and everybody's mad at each other because everybody's got their own story that they constructed, right? And how does that show up in practice? It shows up in what Judges 17, 6 says. In those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. When our emotions, our impulses, our instincts drive the story we believe, that dictates the way we live our life. And when we are all doing our own version of that, sounds a lot like the world that we're in today, right? Our lives... Our lives bear witness. They're proof, the evidence of the story that we believe. We all have a story that we believe. Maybe it's one of these types. But we, we all have a story that we believe that where our meaning and our hope is found, right? Ravi Zacharias talks about these ideas of, of origin, of morality, of destiny, and of purpose. Like if we, we try to find a story that gives us all those answers. If we can find that story, it's going to drive our practice and it's going to drive our responses, right? There's a guy named David Dark, and I love what he says. With this idea of witness, the idea of what we do in our lives. He says, the surest evidence of what you believe is what you do. Show me your receipts, your text messages, gas mileage, online history, a record of your daily doings. And just to get things started, a transcript of the words you've spoken aloud in the course of a single day. He says, the space of your worship is the space of your life. We are all, we are all practicing something. And what we are practicing points to our story. Now, for us as a follower of Jesus, as we look at this story, as we see the story of Daniel, 
and how the story he believed pointed towards his practice and how that showed up as this non-anxious presence when he was put through the, put through the fire, when he, was, when he was faced with the lion's den. As we look at that example of Daniel, there's a, just a couple notes on this idea of witness that I want to talk about. Because if, if, you're, if you're listening, you're a follower of Jesus, your life bears witness to his story. And it's important, right? I want to just talk about a couple quick things. First thing I want to mention is that your witness, your witness is not your salvation. It's the fruit of our salvation, right? Like you are not a Christian because you do these things. We talk about this all the time. We talk about this all the time, but it's important. It's important because I don't want you to mishear me and think, okay, witness what I do, how I respond. I need to get those things intact so I can make sure I'm a Christian. That's looking at it backwards, right? I want to double click on that story. See, it, your witness is not your salvation. It's the fruit of it. I wear a ring. I live with this lady. She's on my life insurance. There's pictures of us where she's in a dress and I'm in an oversized suit. All those things do not, they, they are not the definition of us being married because you can do all those things and not be married. All those things, the photos of us on our wedding day, her name on our life insurance, my ring, all these things are evidence. They're proof to the fact that we're married, right? It's, it's not my marriage in and of itself. We are not saved by our good witness, but our witness, the evidence of our life, points to God that saves. That's why this conversation matters. We're not having this conversation about witness because you should be a good Christian and people should know it just so they know it. Our witness matters because it points to the God that saves. Ephesians 2, For it's by grace that you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not by works so that no one can boast. If we mix these things up, then our practice, what we do, becomes performance for a God. And we, become le- we start leveraging people to try to get God's favor. But when we already have God's favor, then our life bears witness to that God who loved us at our darkest, right? So often what happens is we, culture is a pendulum, right? Like political culture is a pendulum, moral culture is a pendulum, the church, kind of this grace and works is always a pendulum, right? Because naturally as humans, we can kind of swing back and forth as A or B, left, right, all these different things. Where the story of Jesus the story of the gospel becomes this circular thing, right? Becomes this living, breathing thing. Jesus calls us into relationship. So it's not, is it grace or works? It's as we're in relationship, as we are overwhelmed with the grace of Jesus, we are going to live from that, right? I love there's, the, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll follow my commandments. And we can hear that two different ways. If you love me, then you'll follow my commandments. That's the pendulum swinging. But when we look at our relationship with Jesus as this living, breathing thing, because that's what it is, it's a relationship, we hear the words of our Savior different. If you love me, you'll obey me. Like this matter of fact thing, like this, this, this witness and salvation, they go together. They go together, right? As we're talking about notes on witness, I, I want to mention this, that your witness is probably seen most clearly in your failure. Like this idea of witness, I know we're using Daniel as kind of a launching pad, but it's not about living a perfect life. It's about, it's about living a life that points to Jesus in our successes, in the, the mundane aspects of life, and in our failures. And I think sometimes it's our failures that point clearest to our need for Jesus. I used to work at um, the, the tutoring lab of Akron U uh, Library. In the basement of the library at Akron U, worked in this tutoring lab, I worked the desk, I didn't really do anything. But I worked with uh, kind of these girls who were in sororities and stuff like that, and we were friends, and it was just interesting, it was funny, you know, they 
come to work and it's like a one o'clock on a Wednesday and it's like a little hungover. You're like, what is going on? And so I'd tease them or whatever. I'd be like, you want me to turn the lights down? Is it too bright in here? Is this library too loud? And one day, one of the girls I worked with, she said this to me. She said, you know, Aiden, for a Christian, you're a real right? And I was like, it's one of my favorite quotes of all time. But what I said to her was I said, you are right. And that is exactly why I need Jesus. Because apart from having Christ, I am a right? Like, I need Jesus, right? And I, we had some fun with that. But the truth is that the story of the Bible is full of weak people that God uses for his glory. I love 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10. Paul has this, this thorn in his flesh. And Paul says, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness and insults, hardships, persecutions, difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Eugene Peterson says that Christian discipleship is a process of paying more attention to God's righteousness and less attention to our own. That our weaknesses, our failures, our screw-ups may be the clearest times for the goodness of God to break through. Like, don't miss the fact that when we fail, where our lives point to in our failure bears witness to the story that we believe. Don't waste your failure. People may see Jesus clearly in it. So we're talking about witness. Our witness, as I said, is not, it's not just so people can know. Like people need to know you're a Christian just so they can mark it in their notebook and know. Like that's not the point. But our witness points to a kingdom. Our witness points to a kingdom. It bears witness to the story of Jesus. Now we, we said this a few weeks ago. In chapter two, Daniel breaks out in song. And one of the things we said is that whenever we kind of see a song or a poem in the middle of scripture, in the middle, if you're reading through a chapter and there's all of a sudden a song or someone breaks out in a poem, double click on that because that's going to become a central theme to what the chapter is about. Now, what's interesting is at the end of this chapter, King Darius, after he sees that Daniel was rescued, after he throws all those other dudes in the lion's den, not advocating for throwing people in the lion's dens, but what he does is he breaks out in song after he says that everyone must is going to worship this God and revere this God. In, in chapter, in, in verse 26, he says, For he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. Darius breaks out in this song, and we have to double click on this because this song that Darius says becomes central to this whole, this whole chapter. And as we, as we read the song, as we hear the song, we realize that the story of Daniel becomes representative of the kingdom of God. That the king and the kingdom of God will look like they were destroyed, look like they lost, look like they died, look like they were conquered when they're crucified, right? When they're laid in a pit and covered with a stone, just like we see in Daniel 6. But what we see all through the book of Daniel, what we see Darius say in this, in this, in this song is that the kingdom of God is not going to be destroyed. 
It is not going to be destroyed. The king and the kingdom are alive and death could not destroy the kingdom. And it will have no end. The king of this kingdom is the ultimate rescuer who will save his people from the pit, will save his people from sin, save people from themselves. In what looked like weakness was the greatest picture of strength. The song of Darius points to the kingdom of Jesus, the indestructible, all-encompassing story of Jesus. Here's the truth. Here's the truth, that we as followers of Christ, we believe a story. We believe in the story of God, the story of the gospel. That is where our hope is anchored. That is where our trust and our faith is anchored in God's story, the story of Jesus being the king. That God has created all things. That the origin of our, of our existence is in God. That in, all, in him, all things are created, right? That we find the origin in God, right? That we find our meaning as we were created in the image of God, that we are image bearers with God. Yet in this story, we turned our backs on God in our pride and we have let sin enter this world. Yet God, in God's story, his redemption continues. He slowly unravels the story of redemption, which finds its climax in Jesus. When Jesus as the king comes in the most unexpected of ways and ushers in his kingdom in the most unlikely of ways. And Jesus begins a new, a new people. He calls us to follow him into this new kingdom as his kingdom is at hand, right? So for you and I, followers of Jesus, our practice, our practice is that we follow the ways of Jesus. We do what Jesus did. We do what Jesus has called us to, what we see in the Gospels and how it's practically played out in, in the New Testament, in the letters, right? That we, our practice follows the story of Jesus because the story of Jesus its, its destiny is found in the new heavens, new earth, new creation, where Jesus' reign is actualized, right? We have a hope that is beyond this world. That's why we are citizens of heaven. We are citizens of the kingdom of Jesus. The beginning and the end is all found in that story. In our practice, we live our daily lives trusting that story. And what happens when the fire comes, when the uncertainty of life comes, when the pain of life comes, the first thing that happens is we know that those are going to come. Why? Because Jesus promised that they would. We're not surprised by these things. And our response is that we dig deeper into the work of the Spirit and our response is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That our response to the realities and the fires of life is an outpouring of the Spirit coming through us. That the, the fruit of the Spirit is born in our lives, right? Now you're listening to this and you're like, that isn't always the case with me. So why we believe in grace, that's why the kingdom of Jesus, our witness points to the kingdom of Jesus, even in our failure, right? Because we are saved by grace. It's how this whole story comes together. That our origin, our meaning, our morality, our destiny is all found in the story of Jesus. What story? What story does your life point to? What, what story does your life bear witness to? If, if we walk away from today and we're just like, all right, I got to tweak my witness. I got to clean up the witness a little bit. All we're going to be doing is like working with the detail. Like we have to dive back into the story that we believe. Ask ourselves, what story do we believe? Look at your life. Look at your patterns. Look at your speech. Look at your time. All these different things. And it'll point us to the story. 
And what Jesus calls us to, and his invitation is to come follow me into this story. Our witness matters because it points to the hope of Jesus. And I think as we turn on the news, as we have conversations with people, we are believing all kinds of stories that pull us all kinds of different directions. And we as exiles, as foreigners and strangers here, as citizens of the kingdom of God, have an incredible opportunity for our life, the, the, the proof and evidence of our life to bear witness to the goodness and the grace of Jesus. We pray with me today. God, we are so thankful that you meet us where we're at. We're so thankful for the story of Jesus, that Jesus is king, that he has created all things, and that, he will, that, that our ending is found in him, that our hope is found in him that our beginning, our ending is rooted in the goodness of Jesus. And so God, I pray that our lives, our witness may point towards that story that we believe. Jesus, help us this week to be reminded of the goodness of that story, of the profound nature of the story of a king who died for his people, who humbled himself and gave his life for the ones that he loved. God, we're thankful that you call us friends. We're thankful that you invite us into the kingdom. May our lives bear witness to that story. It's because of Christ we pray. Amen.